Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Have you seen any good shows lately? Just you wait, just you wait. My name is... Yes! <laughs> Maybe not all of you have seen the show, but you've probably heard parts of the story, right? Alexander Hamilton was an impoverished immigrant that came to the new land from the Caribbean with nothing but his wits, and he joined a revolution, and he rode his way to recognition, and he fought his way to high position, George Washington's right-hand man. He designed our nation's financial system, still intact. He started a newspaper and a political party, and he antagonized everyone. He cheated on his wife. He lost his son. He decided an election. He died in a duel with the Vice President of the United States. Today, he won't look at you from the $10 bill. It takes everything from rap to opera to tell that story. But if you've seen Lin-Manuel Miranda's Alexander Hamilton, you also know that that play is a parable of a post-Christian culture. God is nowhere on the stage. Even though Eliza Hamilton was a devout Christian, even though God and faith played a huge role in the American Revolution, even though Thomas Jefferson was decidedly not a Christian, God does not make an appearance until... There's a song in the show called It's Quiet Uptown. It's a show written after Alexander and Eliza's son Philip is killed in a duel and he bleeds out in front of his parents. And then we hear these words sung. There are moments that the words don't reach. There is suffering too terrible to name. You hold your child as tight as you can and push away the unimaginable. Craving forgiveness and hope, Alexander Hamilton began crossing himself every time he walked through a doorway. He began to take his children to church and he began to pray. He was reminded that especially during the unimaginable, the human heart runs on hope. The unimaginable, I think we all would agree, would be a phrase that describes the last two years of our lives. Up to this moment, there's a cruel, evil war going on in the Ukraine with someone painting on a missile for the children and launching it at a bus stop. There's another mass shooting in New York City Inflation rates rising, drug overdose, and suicide rates escalating. And I think we would all agree that most every one of us in some way, even today, is still carrying a weariness, a heaviness, 
from what we've lived through the past two years, and all of us beginning in some way to say, is the human condition in any way repairable? Is the planet and its problems, are they solvable? Is hope and future always going to be diminishing returns? What? Time out, you say? Downer alert, downer alert. Larry, don't you know it's Jelly Bean Sunday? What are you doing? Am I getting chocolate after the service or not? Don't worry. <laughs> we'll get there. We will get to that space that is the epicenter of history that changed the entire world, where one Harvard historian has said, if you had a giant magnet and you waved it over all of human history and that magnet pulled up everything that had the name or influence of Jesus on it, there'd be very little left. And don't worry, we'll get to that place, that vortex of transformation that today has called over two billion people to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. We'll get there. It's called the empty tomb. But I thought it was appropriate today to start where Easter starts. On the first day of the week, in the dark. It was dark then. It's dark now. And so we start in the darkness and we're going to follow John's gospel as he tells us the story of one of the witnesses of the resurrection and the first person to talk to the risen Lord Jesus. Her name was Mary, Mary Magdalene, literally Mary Magdala. Magdala is a village up in the north of Israel. It's about 118 miles, and I Google mapped it this week. It takes two hours to drive by car to Jerusalem. Mary Magdala was one of the early followers of Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us that she became part of Jesus' ministry team, which meant two things. She supported the ministry financially, and she was part of the traveling team that took care of uh, this mission and ministry by uh, meeting just physical needs. And so Mary Magdala was a key player in the ministry of Jesus. And she stayed with Jesus through the cross, she knew where Jesus was buried, and so she comes early on the first day of the week to finish wrapping Jesus' body because of the Passover they'd had to stop. And now they start with 100 pounds of spices, John tells us, to wrap uh, Jesus' body and prepare him for the Jewish rite of uh, burial. She's with another, a, a number of other women who were part of Jesus' ministry team. And as they approach the, the graveside in the dark, their biggest concern is who's going to move the stone? Because it's much too big for even a group of us to move. Where are we going to find help in the darkness of the morning? On approach, though, she notices that the stone has been moved. Now, the operative word in the paragraph is the word run. Because Mary Magdala runs to find Peter and John. And Peter and John, hearing the news, run to the tomb. And because John's writing, he wants us to know that he arrives first. <laughs> they get to the tomb, as you heard Taylor read, that uh, Peter goes right in, of course. John hangs back, eventually goes in. 
And there's something about this grave scene, because you'll remember that John had also seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and he knew that when Lazarus came out of the tomb, he needed help getting out of the grave clothes, wrapped like a mummy. Somehow, on his own, Jesus has gotten out. And there's an orderliness to the scene because the cloth that wrapped Jesus' chin shut so nothing would crawl into the, the head was folded. And the orderliness of the scene captured John's heart and he says, I saw that and I believed. There's this comment that he makes in the middle of the text in verse 9 in the middle of the story. It reads, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It's actually a stunning statement because in every chapter of John, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he would say things like, three days I'll be in the grave, but I will rise again on the third day. And you'd think if they'd have gotten it, they'd have been sitting in lawn chairs around the tomb waiting. But no one, no one expected this. They were as astonished by the resurrection as you and I are today. Peter and John go back to their Airbnb in Jerusalem where they were staying for the recent events. Mary stays by the tomb. The text says she is weeping. That word weeping in the original language is the heaviest word for weeping we know. It's one translator translated, profuse sobbing. She is broken by even the, the idea that somebody might have stole Jesus' body. In fact, she asked the angels who are sitting there, where have you taken, not the body, where have you taken my Lord? The deep emotion hangs from a deep bond that she has with Jesus Luke tells us the reason for that deep bond. In Luke chapter 8, we read that Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary Magdala. Now, the word seven in the original language can either mean a literal seven or it can mean the prefix mega. Mega unclean spirits were in Mary Magdala, which you and I can imagine must have made for a spectacularly difficult life. Now, there are those who say it was mental illness, and that could have been a huge part of it. But I think it was more. This idea of demon possession, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wherever Jesus went, he dislodged demons out of people. Demons were a part, a, a big part of the ancient world. They knew about demons. And so a person like Mary Magdala she would throw herself down on the ground with seizure-like symptoms, or she would cut herself, the other accounts tell us, or that she would try to throw herself into fire. Uh, there were uncontrollable behavior and words. And so then, as we would do now, they shunned these people. They pushed them to the margins. They said, you can live on the street, or you, <laughs> uh, ironically, live in a graveyard. You can imagine what happened when Mary Magdala met Jesus. The demons knew who Jesus was. They were the most faithful witness of Jesus in the New Testament. 
And Jesus with a word sent them and healed Mary Magdala. Put her in her right time, in her right mind. You can imagine the bond that she had by being rescued with Jesus. And now, now he's gone. I've lost what is most dear, she's thinking. I know that some of you sitting in these chairs over these last year or two, you've cried Mary's tears. You've lost what is most dear. This is a broken woman. Out of the periphery of her eye, she sees someone standing there. She thinks it's the gardener. She asks the gardener, not where is the body, but where have you taken him? Tell me where he is. I will go get him. And then out of the quiet of that dark Easter morning, she hears, Miriam. It's the Aramaic and Hebrew name. The family language. Mary Magdala was Jewish and so was Jesus. And he speaks Miriam to her. And John, with artistic value, is playing in this paragraph on the word turn. She had turned to ask the gardener and then she turned back to the tomb. And then when he says Miriam, she turns to Jesus again. And in that turn, I'm telling you, the world changed and we become part of an existence now of death to life, despair to hope. The world changed in that turn. And she said, Rabboni, which is her way of saying, you are the center, the absolute anchor of my life. And now Mary knows that there was someone on the other side of the grave who's stronger than death that will call her name. She knows. That's Mary's hope. Mary's hope for us today means two things. First, it means there's life after death. Well, technically, stay with me. Life after life after death, right? We die, our inner personality and being go to heaven to be in the presence of God, but our body is going to ashes and is either in the ground or in a urn on the fireplace. And then when Jesus comes back, the trumpet sound of God, the archangel shouts, and Jesus in all His glory and every knee will bow and everyone will know it. We get a new body. And it's reunited with our inner self. And we live in a new world, in a new heavens and earth. Do you see it? Life after life after death. That's what Easter promise is. And this body, in verse uh, 17, Mary's clinging to it, right? She couldn't be clinging to a spirit. She couldn't be clinging to a ghost. She's clinging to a body, a physical body, flesh, blood, and bones. And this new body, it eats fish with with his disciples in a resurrection appearance. The disciples say again, over 500 people saw him, and they heard him, they saw him, they touched him. It's a physical body. Our future is a physical existence. But this body, it's new. 
It's changed. It can appear in locked rooms without using a door. It can get out of mummy grave clothes without help. It's a uh, body that's prepared for a new heavens and a new earth. You see, the Jews had no problem believing in resurrection. They thought everyone at the end of time would be raised bodily. What they never expected was that a man claiming to be the Son of God would come back in the middle of history and say, everyone, this is what it's going to be like. They did not expect that. And Jesus demonstrates new body and a new existence. Now, you and I, you know, we work hard for significance in this life. We invest ourselves into work. We love our families and our friends well. We work hard to become a better person. We do all that, and all of that is noble. But there are prevalent voices in our culture all around us saying, well, that's all good, and we should be doing those things, but you need to readjust here. You need to set your settings properly. It's one and done, folks. One and done. You die, you're dead. You're in the ground. You're forgotten like a small potato. And eventually, this world, it is going to heat up. And it's going to become uninhabitable. And someone's going to turn the light out on the sun. It's all going to burn. So all that that you've invested into your work, all that you've invested into your family, all that you've invested into yourself, sorry, ultimately means nothing. But, if Sunday morning happened, if this miracle in the dark is true, then there will be a new heavens and a new earth with new physical bodies to live in it. There will be a new existence. Then we agree with theologians like N.T. Wright who said, look, we're not just greasing the wheels on a car that's going over the cliff. Then, if that's true, if the resurrection happened, then every prayer, every act of kindness, everything you've invested into families of immigrants, in, into uh, standing up for the unborn, into the poor, into foster kids, into uh, uh, whatever ministry, whatever your common good at your work, it means everything. Why? Because it continues into the new heavens and the new earth and the new existence. Why? Because every small act of kindness and every prayer becomes infinitely valued by the one who remembers it. The Almighty. And everything you do is overflowing with purpose. Mary's hope means that there's life after death. And secondly, Mary's hope means that there's love after death. In verses 17 and 18 again, we see that she's clinging to Jesus, and then Jesus says, wait, I'm not leaving yet. Hold on. Ouch, you're hurting me. Let's let go. And he says, go and tell my who? Brothers. Interesting word choice, right? These 11 guys who had just deserted him brothers all forgiven then he says and tell them this that when i ascend i'm ascending to my father and your father my god and your god what's that mean it means 
Jesus has made us family. He's given us a love that speaks to the deepest yearnings of our heart. We all long to be loved, but the problem is that everyone we love will disappoint us. The problem is everyone we love, we can't stay with them forever. In this existence, we're losing our grip on them already because we're aging. But there's a love that you will never lose. There's a love that will never let go. There's a love that is always for you. Why is it so hard to do the right thing when we know it will cost us reputation or money? Why is it so hard to realize and actually experience that we're aging? Why is it so hard to lose a loved one? Why is it so hard to face our own death when our health goes poorly? It's so hard because sometimes we think that this broken world is the only world we'll ever have. Do you have hope today? In this unimaginable time that which we live, do you have hope? What's your hope? You know, our prevalent voices say, well, good vibes. Good attitude, positive. Lean into it. It'll get better. The war will end. This sermon will end, right? Eventually? (laughs) Keep hoping. (laughs) Can I speak to that with an unlikely source? Two words. Bobby Knight. Didn't expect that one, did you? Bobby Knight's a basketball coach, Hall of Fame, University of Indiana, known for graduation rates and victories and throwing chairs and abusing his players. He wrote a book a few years ago called, (laughs) appropriately, The Power of Negative Thinking. I thought that was funny. You didn't. Sorry. (laughs) Bobby Knight's point is this. You can hope all you want, but nothing's going to happen until somebody does something. It's on record, I'm saying I agree with Bobby Knight. (laughs) Hope all you want, but nothing will happen until somebody does something. I'm saying that hope is not a how, hope is not a when, hope is not a what, hope is a who. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he pursued you in love. And He died on the cross to take our sins out of the middle between us and the Father. And we now have this love and the promise of this life because He walked out of His own grave by His own power. That is hope. Hope is a who. His name is Jesus. Now, maybe you're here this morning Maybe you might think there's a God. Just a quick thought experiment. What if God, by definition, is strong? Then is it such a far leap to think that God might have power over the grave? If that's a possibility for you in your heart, I would suggest to you that in this moment, Jesus 
wants to call your name from the other side of the grave. And all you need to do to answer in this moment is what the Apostle Paul, who saw the risen Lord, said. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Rescued like Mary. Given Mary's hope in the midst of an unimaginable time. Even in the quietness of this moment, we'll just pause. And you can pray some of these words with me that might resonate in your heart as you want to connect with the Heavenly Father. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this eyewitness story about what happened so many Easter mornings ago. Thank you that Jesus has walked out of his own grave and thus he's given us life beyond death and love that will never end. Jesus, I want that. I need you. I believe you walked out of your grave. I say to you, you are my Lord and King, and I'll follow you. I want to become part of your story and what you're doing around this world. Fill my life with meaning and hope. And I pray in the name of the living Jesus. Amen.